Welcome to the Street Smart Wisdom Podcast from Wisdom Feed. I'm Steve Stein. In this series, we talk to best-selling authors and thought leaders doing great work in the world of mindfulness, wellness, and creativity. Our mission is to bring ancient ideas down to street level and bring you takeaways that you can apply to everyday life. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterListen.com. At BetterListen, we have hundreds of audios, courses, and programs available to stream and download. As a listener to the Street Smart Wisdom podcast, you are eligible for a free audiobook download. Just visit BetterListen.com forward slash free today. Welcome to this edition of the Street Smart Wisdom podcast. My name is Steve Stein. Our guest today, Shelly Tagilski. She is the creator of Pandemic of Love, a mindfulness teacher, and an incredible motivator. In this wisdom profile, Shelly tells us what makes her tick and how she has gotten on this path of service, mindfulness, and making the world a better place. Welcome, everyone. My name is Steve Stein, and I'm the host of the Street Smart Wisdom Podcast, and we are happy and privileged to have Shelly Tegelski as a guest today. And Shelly has been doing some incredible work over the last few years. I was fortunate to uh, meet her at the Wisdom 2.0 event in New York a few months ago, BC, before Corona, and uh, and while, while things were different. And it's a privilege and honor and all that good stuff to have her here today. So welcome, Shelly. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Steve. Absolutely. So I wanted to ha- invite you today to do a couple of things. Talk about the incredible work that you're doing, but also find out who you are. And we have a a segment we call like a wisdom profile. So, you know, what are your roots or, you know, explain to us who you are, what you do in broad strokes, and then we can get into some of the specific things that you're doing. Sure. Well, that's such a, that's such a loaded question. Who are you? <laughs> so being that we don't have all the time in the world, uh, what I'll tell you is, I guess, who I am to the outside world. Um, I am a a full-time mindfulness teacher, uh, specifically a trauma-informed mindfulness teacher. I am a community organizer, and I am also an activist, uh, not just in the social justice uh, areas or arenas, but also uh, I'm a self-care activist. Um, And it's really um, a lot of the work that I do through self-care and helping uh, social justice organizations build communities of care uh, that a lot of the work that I do on the community organizing side is really informed. Um, I'm also a mom to a really great 18-year-old kid who's about to go off to college and make his way in the world. 
and I'm a, you know, a daughter and a, and a wife and a sister um, and a friend to many. So in a nutshell, I'd say if that was my inscription on my tombstone, maybe that would be it. <laughs> no, that, that, I don't know if it'll fit in a tweet, but it'll, we can hopefully <laughs> on your tombstone in 3,000 years. That's why I, you know, <laughs> it, They'll probably have digital tombstones at some point where you can like click for more. Right, exactly. Thank you for the uh, snapshot. So what is trauma-informed mindfulness? I've never really heard that term before. So trauma-informed mindfulness is um, basically, uh, it stemmed out of the realization that a lot of these incredible contemplative practices um, that are steeped in tradition and certainly now in scientific research can actually activate or trigger um, individuals in a way that can uh, cause harm unintentionally, of course, rather than healing uh, as it is intended to do. And even when an individual doesn't necessarily present as, as having, let's say, you know, some massively traumatic event that happened in their life, whether it was over years or one occurrence of, you know, uh, an event, you don't necessarily need to um, have PTSD um, as an illness to experience any type of, you know, negative reaction or response to, um traditional contemplative practices. Um, So the trauma-informed mindfulness route basically says, look, we know that even in um, non-traumatized populations, if you will, or normal populations, that sometimes the use of mindfulness or meditation can really, can have an adverse effect, you know, before it eventually kind of emerges into the light, so to speak. And so knowing that you're going to administer or take individuals that we know have the onset of trauma um, or dealing with traumatic, um, with post-traumatic stress disorder, how do you um, approach their healing in a way that is more informed with greater care And more importantly, gives them choices because what we often find with populations that are dealing with trauma is that um, in some ways, you know, the trauma was thrust, right? And so they feel like they don't have control over anything, their life, the choices that are made for them, uh, the choices that were made for them that resulted in the situation that they're in or the the way that they're feeling at this point in time. And so allowing them to make choices still in this practice. And and I'll give you a very, very simple example. You know, as a meditation teacher, oftentimes when we're guiding people, we instruct them and say, you know, sit this way, close your eyes, you know, and you're kind of giving these prompts of what you're supposed to do. Whereas as a trauma-informed teacher, quite simply, you don't say close your eyes. You say, you know, uh, if you feel so inclined, you may close your eyes or 
if you prefer to leave them open, you can leave them open, you know, and here's another way to practice. So you're essentially giving some choices to individuals um, and you're making sure that um, you're removing um, as many unknowns as possible so that they know what to expect and that they know that they're not being held like in a captive way, but that they are actually in control and they're in the driver's seat. Okay. So, well, that's, that's, that's a new term and that makes sense. And, you know, trauma is, uh, is a word that maybe three, four years ago was, or two, three years ago was something you, I would think about an emergency room, but now it, you know, in caregivers, all of a sudden, it's, uh, you know, it's, it has other layers of meaning. So how did you prepare to do this? What's your background in terms of uh, uh, were you a therapist? Were you, or, or, you know, or just meditation or just a, I know one of the part of your background is you're a, uh, you're a skater, skater girl. <laughs> So did that prepare you for this no, in any way? not at all, actually. But um, my background's actually, uh, you know, I was in corporate America for for almost two decades. Um, certainly, I'm sure that a lot of the skill sets I learned in terms of communicating with people effectively, um, you know, being a presenter, a leader, somebody who can rally people around, like obviously all those skill sets are transformed transportable, they're exportable, they're, I'm sorry, transferable and exportable. Um, and uh, so, but it, in so far as like dealing with individuals that um, have been traumatized or being a psychologist or a therapist, I am not one. I actually happen to be at the, um, you know, at a certain time and a place. I don't say right place, the right time or wrong place, the wrong time. It just happened to be at a certain time in a certain place. Um, and, um, out of, you know, the need, I was just, I was an, an MBSR teacher, a meditation teacher. Um, and I was thrust into suddenly serving populations that, um, were dealing with trauma because I, live in uh, Broward County, Florida. I um, was, um, you know, affected emotionally and as a community uh, leader and also somebody with a son that was in high school when the shooting happened at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, which is in Broward County. And being a meditation teacher and a community organizer already in the county and somebody that was very active politically as well um, at the time and still, um, I was sort of looked to um, by others as, you know, what, like, how can we use mindfulness to help alleviate some of this pain? And so I, I, really had to approach it with a really with just great, great care. I had to approach the, the individuals, uh, you know, students, parents who, uh, whose children were, were murdered on that day, parents who had children that were injured, teachers who were dealing with great trauma uh, because of what happened in their classrooms. Um, and and I, I really looked to the community that we have around the world and really around the country 
of mindfulness teachers and researchers. I'm so fortunate that we have um, a leader like Dr. Amishi Jha here at the University of Miami, you know, um, who was a great um, resource. And people like um, David Trelevin, who is really on the forefront of, uh, and has written a book on the topic actually, and does a podcast on the topic of trauma-informed mindfulness. Um, and so just being able to pick the brains of, uh, be pointed in the direction of research and um, best practices that I could incorporate into my, my delivery as a teacher, um, and also understand where activation points are that I need to recognize, be aware of, and know what to do if they come up uh, was really um, imperative and impo- important. The other thing is, is that I um, also work hand in hand, like when I'm in teaching a retreat to a specific population that was, for example, is dealing with um, you know, trauma due to gun violence, um, we always have a therapist. I always make sure that there is a therapist that is co-teaching with me or co-leading or available, whether it's in person or even online, um, nowadays. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that you don't necessarily, I don't think, or at least that I didn't, uh, I didn't have a game plan and say like, I want to treat these types of individuals or I want to teach this type of a population. I just happened to be at a certain place at a certain time where there was a need. And I recognized that there was a gap in what I was delivering and I needed to, to you know, fill it up with information and training and best practices. And so I, I, I managed to do that and I, found the work to be very gratifying and the need to be very great because what we learned in Parkland served as a model for, um, unfortunately, all the additional um, subsequent communities that experienced mass shootings and um, the communities that experience gun violence every single day in this country. Wow. So, you know, it's all of a sudden you're thrust into a situation and you don't normally think of the term mindfulness as kind of triage. I mean, right. you were like right there, like how, like how many days after were you like on campus or with survivors or that's the right term survivors or. Yeah. They're survivors and victims basically. Right. Um, victims, families, survivors, um, I was um, already involved within 24 hours. The shooting was on February 14th. And really within the first 24 hours of the shooting, I was already involved in working with organizers for March for Our Lives, working with the county, working on, you know, just in different capacities, like I said, as a political leader, as a community organizer, but then also as a mindfulness teacher. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And uh, so... I have two teenage boys. Thankfully, you know, we've had some lockdowns, drills mm-hmm. and stuff like that. One time, you know, yeah. I'm not trying to trivialize it, but my yeah. boys high school, they the school was locked down and my son is tweeting from under a desk and 
turned out some kid had a super soaker, you know, a toy gun outside, yeah. and yeah. it was very real. I mean, thank God it wasn't real. But right. uh, so did, did, teen, did teens or the parents, or like, probably a lot of them have never even considered mindfulness or meditation. And now, sure. did, were they like resistant or like whatever you got, let me try it or? I mean, I think people were, after the initial shock, it didn't really wear off, but I would say sunk in. Um, yeah, people, a lot of people were willing to try anything to get relief. They were like, please, like, I need relief. What can I try? You know, what can I turn to? So people were turning to different types of, um, you know, therapy modalities, like for them new, like EMDR, for example, which is really used a lot with people undergoing trauma. Um, it was, you know, um, a, a time when I think uh, people are just open to listening and trying, um, especially if somebody within the community says this worked for me, you should try it. And so one of the things that I was able to do really early on was partner up with an organization called Survivors Empowered and their website is survivorsempowered.org. And Survivors Empowered was founded by uh, Sandy and Lonnie Phillips, whose daughter was murdered at the Aurora movie theater shooting. And they sold all of their belongings after that happened and decided that they were going to um, live a nomadic life that in an RV basically and go um, become advocates and be on the scene um, after any mass shooting in this country. So essentially what they've become is like the FEMA of mass shootings. I hate to say that, but the, the with the frequency of you know, what happens in this country on a daily basis. Um, we, uh, we need that. We need to have some sort of an organization. And unfortunately, since the federal government doesn't want to provide that type of an organization, certainly they can also pro help provide the solution so that we don't even need that type of organization. But um, Sandy and Lonnie really have, you know, mobilized and, and become, become that they've filled that need. So they, now have a network of survivors and victims around the country. And when a mass shooting happens, like when the shooting happened at Santa Clarita and Saugus, within 24 hours, they had uh, parents, you know, from Columbine, from Santa Parkland, who were reaching out to parents there. Because what happens is, is that you can, you can say to, with, even within 24 hours, um, just like when Sandy and Lonnie came here, you know, right after the Parkland shooting, they met with some of the parents and said, we know what you're going through. And they really did know what they, they really were going know. through. They really know. Right. But if somebody else comes to you and says, you really should try this, you know, EMDR therapy, or you should try mindfulness, or you should try other types of modalities. And people are like, what do you even know about what I'm going through? And, you know, but, but as a parent, they could say like, this is what we did after and this is what we've learned and here's here's the good the bad and the ugly and this is what you can expect this is how it's going to probably feel um and people are willing to listen to them because there's um you know they speak from an unfortunate experience they're members of this club that nobody wants to be part of wow so it's 
you know, it's not unlike, well, it's a crisis, right? And when people yeah. are in crisis, whether it's a healing crisis, because a lot of people until they're, they have some kind of healing, either personally or someone in their family, a real crisis, then I'll try anything. And if there's no side effects, even better. But, um, mm -hmm. and uh, wow. So I just want to acknowledge your amazing work. I mean, that's Thank just you. phenomenal. Just, I can't like even go forward in this conversation because <laughs> it's just like so special, you know, that you stepped up and, you know, and then in, it seems like you're just getting started. So that's, that's awesome. And you keep bringing energy and insight. And I guess um, let's pivot to what's happening now. Sure. So, so what I see now uh, is this, I don't know, the great reset or the great whatever you want, the new normal. Uh, not that this has anything to do with anything that's normal, but we have to try to get some new bearings as we move forward. But I think that in some ways, uh, it's a, a healing crisis for the planet in some ways, you know? Yeah. So, and I think that it's forcing people to look at things differently. Not everyone, of course, you know, science is a plus, you know, science is important. Science is, truth and all those words are meaningful and important. But now when I first heard the phrase that you came up with for what's going on during Corona, um, pandemic of love, right now. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> and, but my God, it's again, it's, but this is community organizing though, but digitally. Yeah. And, is it outside of the country yet or tell us sure. a little, so tell us a little bit about, you know, how it came to be and what it is and all that good stuff. Yeah. So pandemic of love is actually, um, it's a grassroots volunteer led organization. We're not a 501 C three. The concept started um, based on a lot of the principles and tenets of what I do pre-pandemic or what I did pre-pandemic, right? Which is um, as a self-care activist, help um, individuals or communities, social justice organizations build formalized and institutionalized communities of care. And also as a community leader, um, I am constantly creating um, networks of mutual aid. So I'll explain what that means. So Mutual aid is just a very simple concept, um, and I will kind of liken it back to, um, I'm sure most of the people listening had parents, you know, I don't care what culture or background they're from, but everybody's parents always use the phrase or grandparents back in the day. <laughs> so back in the day, when we were growing up, we knew who our neighbors were, you know, when, when, when Sally next door was sick, we would know and we would bring her, you know, um, chicken soup. And when so-and-so down the road, you know, had a death in the family, this would happen. We'd all rally behind that person and so on, right? And so that network, that fabric, that safety net, if you will, has been lost over the years, of course, after, definitely after, um, uh, 
you know, just people started moving into further away from where they grew up. And, you know, um, as we started moving into cities and life became more fast paced, um, we don't know who our neighbors are anymore. We could live literally across the hall from somebody in a condominium and not know who our neighbors are. So we certainly don't know what's going on in their life or what their needs are. Um, and so the idea of mutual aid sort of brings that back in the day, back into the present moment. And it uh, formalizes it because it holds um, individuals accountable and says, like, you are now part of this mutual aid network or this community of care. And here are the needs that people have identified that they have. Some, someone may have a transportation need. Some person may have a financial need. Some people may need childcare needs. Some people may need, you know, help with cooking or whatever. Every, you know, it just varies. And then there's always individuals that they may also be the individuals in need, but they also have things that they can give, right? And so it's this concept that it takes a village and really it's that kind of tribal village mentality of like, we look out for one another. And so it's not such a foreign thing, you know, it's a pretty simple concept, but when right, it's- foreign, Right, if you want to borrow a cup of sugar from a neighbor, yeah, oh, by exactly. the way, I need some olive right. oil or I need- right, Exactly. So Exactly. It's just this exchange network, right? That's sort of this dying breed of uh, way of being, if you will. It's like a cooperative. Um, Yeah, exactly. And we're sort of, it's like a kibbutz. (laughs) We're bringing it, we're we're breathing life back into, um, into what it means to be part of a community, a true, true community, right? And so, um, when the pandemic started to like the wave of closures started to happen across the country, it took a while. Florida is usually one of the last states to adopt um, anything really. Um, And so, you know, but we saw started seeing the wave of like closures in New York and in California and other states. And then Florida finally, like where, where, which is where I live um, kind of uh, woke up to the realization that, things that things were going to close. And so people in my community here locally in South Florida um, that I support in the uh, Dade, Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County areas, um, I started getting emails and texts and um, seeing stuff on social media. Of course, Florida being a state that has a lot of hospitality-based um, you know, jobs, a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people um, were um, furloughed, were had no income. There's so many people that are members of our community that rely on um, just, again, the hospitality or restaurant industries to survive, to live, to create a life for themselves. And um, at that time, there wasn't a game plan or a stimulus plan or, you know, nobody knew what was going to happen. And we were telling people, well, go stock up, stock up your fridge. Well, if you're not getting a paycheck or your restaurant closed and you're already living paycheck to paycheck, how exactly are you supposed to stock up on anything? Right. So, um, I decided to create two forms, a give help form and a get help form. Very simple concept using Google forms Um, and originally there was no website either. We just, I literally just had two forms. I created a less than 60 second video and I put it up on, um, 
I put it up on uh, my Instagram and Facebook pages. And I said, Hey, you know, I know a lot of you are freaking out, you're struggling. And we had, there's a lot of people in our community that are, that have privilege and that are able to fill their own fridge and are happy to help you stock up and get supplies and help you meet the needs that you have. So I posted the two links, went to bed the next morning when I checked uh, to see what came in, we had over 400 individuals that filled out the form for that they were in need. And then over 500 people who filled out the need, the, the give help links. So I started to just manually match people by email and introduce them and say, you know, hey, Steve, meet Jane. Jane's a single mom of three and she needs help with groceries to, and, and with, um, you know, diapers for her new newborn daughter or something like that. And, and I, we would exchange information via email and then you, Steve would call Jane or text her and create a human connection and make her feel seen and heard, listen to what issues or concerns she has. And then you would transfer money to her or buy her a gift card to the local supermarket. Or, you know, in some cases, some people have gone above and beyond because they realized, oh, this person I'm talking to is a senior or they're immunocompromised. Why don't you just send me a grocery list? You live, you know, 20 minutes from me. I'll go shopping for you. I'll drop it off at your front door. Like types of things between perfect strangers, which make us realize that really there are no strangers, right? And so in my original video that I posted, um, I, I didn't have a name for this concept, but I did say in that video that, you know, love is a virus, love is contagious, and that love is a cure. And so we can really hate um, a pandemic of love and show that love can conquer fear and that love can win. And that was it. That was, you know, and so, and the hashtag became pandemic of love. And that's how we came up with this. Uh, with the website and then everything that subsequently followed. So what's happened is that those links, those original links were shared now thousands of times all around the globe. Um, we have um, close to our, this week we'll have close to 150 micro communities around the world. Um, as far as Australia, um, Lisbon, uh, Denmark, uh, we have about 14 countries in Latin America right now, you know, who are from Mexico to Ecuador and um, Argentina. And, um, and we're all across the U.S. We're pretty much in every state at this point. But even if we're not, people can still apply. And we've actually just recently, as of this weekend, partnered with the Navajo Nation as well um, to help support them with... Um, not just financial support, but actually support them with uh, their need for, for water, for drinking water. Um, and so uh, we've, we're supporting a specific organization that is purchasing barrels, getting the water, delivering it to uh, tribe members and family members uh, all across the four corners. So um, it's incredible because we're, we have 500, over 500 volunteers um, that have just, 
risen up and said, what can I do and how can I help? And those volunteers do everything from social media to spend hours and hours of their day matching people within their community, looking at the forms, creating those shidduchs, as I say. Um, I think everybody that's our volunteer now knows that word, whether they know Yiddish or not. I'm like, (laughs) I basically taught everybody that word. It's hysterical to listen to them saying it. Um, and with a, with, uh, a, with a southern accent, right? Oh yeah, yeah, no, like seriously, like the the people that are saying it, even with like a Latin accent, it's great. I love it. It's the best. Like um, the I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> so awesome, and so um, yeah. So it's 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 amazing because um, it's we're nearing. Um, 75,000 matches now, um, you know, yep. We've matched, which means that at least, at least 150,000, uh, math, like human connections have been made between perfect strangers. Right. And that's a, and each of those 150,000 are families. So it's like, yeah, no, the impact is much greater than that, but we just were counting the transactions, right. The connections. So it's 75,000 unique connections that have been made, the impact of which is greater. The median um, uh, transaction amount, and it could be as little as $50 and up to $5,000, but the median is per transaction, and some people transact multiple times, like weekly with a family, is $135. So when you kind of factor all that out, um, that means that we've, transacted at minimum at least $10 million over the last seven weeks, almost, maybe, right? Seven, well, that, no, yes, actually, yeah, something. That maybe. is astounding. Yeah. It's pretty amazing, it is. It's really, um, it's amazing because I think it's just a testament to how, um, you know, the word viral or a virus doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing that it can actually also be positive things can be spread too, and they can be contagious. So hope and faith and certainly love. Wow. I mean, it's just beyond, you know, unfathomable or whatever astounding term you can come up with, but, um, and I would imagine these people, you know, if you're a person, if you're stuck in a house, mm-hmm. the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and you have a few shekels, you know, and, and you're safe, and thank God, you know, a yeah. lot of people are totally, and it reminds me of 9-11, a lot yeah. of this, in that in New York, if you, you know, I was in New York City during 9-11, and people that uh, were from Chicago, even, or from L.A., or not to mention the uh, the smaller towns, they just didn't get it. Maybe DC to a certain extent, but they didn't. They didn't get the trauma and the and the planes, you know, the fighter jets circling New York for like a month after that. It was. It's like this: like some families are untouched, or mm-hmm. somewhat, and some are just like I'm. I'm here in New Jersey where. Right. You know, someone in my son's grade, his father passed away. His best friend's father was in the hospital for three weeks. Thank God he's out and doing well. But this 
you know, we're just finishing our new website. The developer is in India. She's mm. on lockdown. We have some virtual assistants in the Philippines. Right. Now, I mean, so this yeah. opportunity for and thing that you kind of birthed is just, wow. Yeah. So, But, I mean, it's amazing because I think it's just, it really is, it's a testament to how people people always say like, what can one person do? You know, I'm one person. Like what I said that to my kids. When I heard this, that you were doing this, I said, told both of my boys, I said, now what are you going to show me? More mindfulness or more like organic cookies that or whatever, you know? Yeah. No, just look what one person can do. Right. You know, that's it. It's just throwing a pebble in the water. I think everybody could be a pebble thrower. I like it. Pebble thrower. Everyone could be a pebble thrower. I love it. Yeah. Very, very cool. So what, what can someone do to kind of jump in or be, or, or find out more? So um, you can go to pandemicoflove.com and um, there's a lot of information and interviews and articles that have been written about our movement all around the world uh, that are shared on our media tab. And then on the homepage, there's links the links, give help, get help. And then there's a third link that says, I want to get involved. So if somebody's interested in uh, starting a micro community where they live, if there isn't one, we can help you do that. If there is one, we can introduce you to the team that's on the ground so that you can help. And if you have a company or a brand that wants to create a partnership, so perfect example is Keller Williams is a big real estate, you know, conglomerate here in this, in the country, we've officially partnered with Keller Williams. Um, and they have something called red day that they do every year on May, on May 14th, which is their day of giving. And because they can't go to Habitat for Humanity or build a house or do anything physically. And, you know, they basically decided to partner with pandemic of love and every single one of their realtors is going to be adopting a family for Red Day, and we're going to be- What? They must have so many people. That's amazing. So many people. So we have like their microlinks on our partner site. So if you have um, a small business, if you have a um, a professional, you know, you're, you're, you have a, a, an accounting firm or a, a law firm, or you're a brand or whatever, we can basically, or even a nonprofit, we've, we've partnered with a lot of nonprofits that actually need help. And they are, you know, supporting specific populations. We have a group, for example, called Ovations for the Cure in Farmingham, Massachusetts, that their mission is to support women with late stage ovarian cancer and help them with food and, you know, getting them um, assistance in the home and all these other things. And suddenly their funds dried up. They had no events. They had no money coming in, but these women still needed help. Um, And so we essentially just used our model to create microlinks for them and to um, have these women that are, um, you know, fighting the good fight um, with their disease against their disease are actually now being partnered up with families all over the country that are making sure that they have everything they need so that they can fight that fight. Wow. Did you ever think you're going to put on your resume that you're a pebble thrower? (laughs) 
Um, I think you're more like a wave maker, actually. This is like, this is big. Well, I don't make the waves. I just, I I hope that I can just inspire other people to pick up a pebble and throw it and just give people, you know, um, just a roadmap and just say like, here, you know, here's, here's a roadmap, planting a seed with people so that they can realize that they can, from that one seed, they can grow a whole forest, you know? And I think a lot of times people just um, are so disillusioned or so um, just powerless, you know, um, in our society. And it's easy to feel that way nowadays. But um, I guess it's my hope that I can just inspire people to realize that even as, as it is said in the Old Testament, right? Like he who saves one person, it is as if he saved the world, the entire world. And it's true. If we can just help one person at a time, one family at a time, the, what happens is, is that if everybody did that, if everybody just took responsibility for one family, then imagine how many millions, billions of people we could help and support. Wow. That's just brilliant. I have an, another question that I usually finish up these wisdom profiles sure. things with. If you're up for it, let, let's, let, let's kind of try it. Sure. So first of all, and before we, I ask this again, and what's your website? How, how can people find you on social and all that good stuff? Well, so um just to make it easy for people, you could go to pandemicoflove.com and and on the about section, there's a little bit about me, but there's also a link out to my personal website. So if you ever, you know, want to know more about me on a personal basis or follow what I'm doing. Um, Also um, my Instagram account is, as you mentioned earlier, it's mindful skater girl. That's a whole conversation for another time. Um, But uh, Maybe that's something you could share with your sons because maybe that they'll think that that's a little bit cooler. A little bit cooler, right? Yeah, right, right. we could teach them how so, to metascate. What's that? We could teach them how to metascate. Metascate. I like it. I like it. You know, I, I did some work, and they actually met George Mumford once at, at a Nick game. Cool. Uh, the fact that he worked, you know, uh, with a lot of the greats meditating. He was like, wow, dad, maybe there is something to that. <laughs> anyway, so just, okay, so a question that we like to finish up with these and these wisdom profiles is, um, if you were a superhero, what would your origin story be? You know, what was a catalyst to get you into this? Is there one thing that kind of set you on this path? Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, the one thing would be sitting in a, uh, on a living room floor, drinking tea with a Palestinian mother in Gaza. Wow. <laughs> As an Israeli who was raised to hate, um, or be afraid of, I should say, um, the people on the other side. The others, the others, the Correct. other side, right. So yeah. what happened? What happened there? You have you know, quickly, you know, like. Um, I was I was a I was a, a college student. I was studying abroad. Uh, I did a year abroad at Hebrew University, the Rothberg School, um, and I was also interning and working with the Ministry of Defense in Israel um, 
doing, doing uh, polling work, wound up getting a job for uh, the UNHCR actually to do some work, uh, field work and polling. Um, and I essentially was assigned to a team to work in the occupied territories of Israel uh, with Palestinian mothers specifically to um, learn more about um, human rights violations and, you know, what basically, you know, their hopes and aspirations are for, for their own children. And it was just an eye-opening experience for me. And um, it changed the course of my life. Certainly it helped me to recognize the import that importance of and I go back to how it comes full circle to even pandemic of love the human connection being seen and heard and how important it is to um to do that for people and to be able to even have an empathic connection with somebody who you thought you could never have a connection with because they are completely polar opposite of you or that they they're the enemy don't didn't you know how do you uh Correct. Yeah, exactly. So, so I realized all the things we have in common. Wow. Okay. You know, all the things that separate us and the walls got knocked down. And when, when you knock down a wall, what happens? It creates a bridge. So there you go. Nice, nice, nice way to end. Okay. Shelly, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation and we'll see you next time. Thank you. I really appreciate the time and uh, the platform. Thank you so much. Um, Our pleasure. You've been listening to Street Smart Wisdom, the podcast from Wisdom Feed. You can follow Wisdom Feed on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. If you haven't, Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes. We appreciate your feedback. Join us next week for another Street Smart Conversation. Thank you for listening.